Welcome to the Christus EMS Educational Podcast Series. I'll be your host, Michael Williams, and today we're actually going to talk about trauma and the goals of trauma care uh, with Dr. Brandon Euler, Associate Medical Director for Christus EMS. So sit back, get ready, and we are going to listen to Dr. Euler. Hey, welcome back, everyone. It's time for another Christus EMS educational podcast series. Uh, I'm your host, Michael Williams, and I have uh, Dr. Brandon Euler here with me. How are you doing today? I'm good. Welcome yeah. back, everybody. Um, I know that uh, we have not really been doing our typical clinical uh, scenarios with our guests and stuff. I'm sure we'll get back to that here soon, but I think we had some pressing things that we needed to uh to talk about. Yeah. Um, I think the probably most importantly was what our lights and sirens that uh, we recently released. Yeah, I think that's a, a pretty good one for y'all to go back and listen to. Um, we're making a lot of changes as far as lights and siren use, and um, you'll be getting more information about this uh, in the future. Uh, and we're going to make some changes to improve your safety, but also uh, that of the patients. I know I've been tasked probably to be focusing a lot on the transport to receiving facilities from like 911s mm-hmm. or interfacility transfers yep. where the paramedics are making the decision to transport party one or even to upgrade from like party two to party one. Mm-hmm. And so I think for our clinical QA piece, we're, we're moving towards reviewing those for the appropriateness. Yep. So we're going to review all of the priority one. Uh-huh. Um, and so documentation is going to have to be made by, by y'all. And then any of the upgrades, uh, we also want to be notified from priority two to priority one. And so definitely something that we're going to be reviewing in the QA, QI process um, in the future. Well, that all that being said, um, you you got some news to share with everyone. Yes, so uh, kind of talking about what's coming up. CE days is going to be uh, here October seventeenth uh, to the twenty first. You'll be getting more information about this, uh, and this is um, going to be great. Uh, we look forward to it. Uh, hopefully, y'all can uh, get something out of it, learn from it. Um, Dr. Donahue and myself will both be there, um, kind of intermittently. Uh, to talk with y'all and help out with it. Um, also on the 15th, so in two days, uh, those old vents are going to be coming online. Make sure that you know how to use them. Uh, make sure you review the training that we put out. Um, and if you have questions or any concerns, uh, let us know. So let's go ahead and get into today's podcast. Um, we wanted to talk a little bit about traumatic injuries and we're going to review the basics of trauma. I kind of want to make this a series. So today we're going to talk about basics, a little bit about some specifics. And then uh, in the next couple podcasts, I want to talk about specific things related to trauma uh, more in depth. Uh, A lot of you already know this, uh, know how to take care of traumatic traumatic injuries and traumas uh, from uh, ATLS. Uh, But I think it's a a good thing to review. Uh, That way you all know it uh, and, and can out there taking care of patients and, and traumatic injuries. So you say ATLS, but that's more that's of a for, physician. That thing. is more on my side, yes. I'm <laughs> so used to ATLS. <laughs> that so, is definitely on my side. But a lot of what we do pre-hospital is based off of what ATLS and the surgeons put out. That's exactly. And and for us and, and everybody that actually is listening probably knows PHTLS 
is actually comprised from the ATLS, ATLS yeah. and the surgeons. Yes. So, um, so it's got their perspective. Yes. So a lot of what so. you do is based around what the trauma surgeons put out that I have to go through and learn uh, and did in residency and then what y'all do as well. So good point. Very good yeah. point. <laughs> Just thought I'd throw that out there. <laughs> yes. Uh, so the goals of trauma care, um, it's going to be rapid assessment and management of life-threatening injuries. So we want to safely move patients um, in a manner that prevents worsening of, of their injuries and the severity of their injuries. Uh, and so that involves rapid safe transport to an appropriate trauma center. Uh, our goal and kind of reviewing things, literature, uh, is to minimize scene time to less than 10 minutes when possible. So we want to manage life-threatening injuries within our capabilities and then transport within 10 minutes to a trauma center. Uh, or start that transfer process. <clears throat> so when you have a traumatic injury or a multi-system trauma, we start with our primary survey. So we want to assess for hemorrhage. You want to stop hemorrhage. That involves direct pressure, tourniquets, which we'll get into more detail. You're going to use spinal motion restriction. Uh, and we have a good CPG within our, our system um, that I want you all to review because there are some indications where a C-collar may not be required. Yeah. Um, but if you are ever concerned, I want you to err on the side of caution and put a C collar on or spinal motion restrictions. Hey, before you move on, I just mm -hmm. want to go back to that 10 minute piece. Mm -hmm. So that's our time. Yes. Hopefully that we're able to use, um, uh, avoiding multiple patients and also extrication. Yes, yes right? absolutely. Because that seems to be the thing that I always see that drags our time down on scene. Yes. But if we were a single patient, single patient scenario, you this don't would... have a prolonged extrication. We our goal is less than ten minutes. Yeah. I, we know that that's probably not going to happen on a regular basis. But we need to document. But those. we want to document the delays, yeah. extrication. If you have multiple patients. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're having a triage, those need to be documented. Because this all comes down to the golden hour. Yes. That's part of that whole trauma piece, yep. right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. And I, there's some literature coming out about the golden hour I don't want to get into. Yeah. So oh, we're going to leave that a prelude? out. Right now. Is yes. this a prelude? <laughs> is that going to be in the specialty? Maybe pieces? we'll talk about that in the oh, next okay. one. <laughs> right. uh, so back to our ABCDs. We've talked about hemorrhage, we've talked about spinal motion restriction. Uh, so airway. So we want to assess the airway for patency. You're going to look for any type of injuries that can cause an airway obstruction. So does a patient have a facial fracture? Is there a large expanding hematoma? Is there massive hemorrhage, emesis? Do they have burns, inhalation injuries that are going to cause any type of obstruction or difficulty with airway management and intubation? This is that list that makes us think of intubating early, real mm -hmm. early, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yep. So and we've talked about airway management in the past. And yeah. So this yeah. is this airway with traumas kind of leads into what we've talked about in the past in some previous podcasts. Um, so you're going to consider airway adjuncts um, if they have inadequate uh, respiratory effort. Uh, you can assist with BVM, uh, and then if there is any concern for impending obstruction, if they're altered GCS less than eight, we all know the mantra GCS less than eight intubate, mm -hmm. you're going to secure the airway with a definitive airway management using spinal motion restriction uh, precautions. Um, then you're going to move to breathing. Uh, you're going to assess the respiratory rate. They're, they're, um, are they diminished? Do they have uh, no breath sounds on the left or the right? Are they wheezing? Do they have any kind of uh, uh, evidence of a tension pneumothorax. So um, 
Do they have absent diminished breath sounds? Are they hypotensive? So signs of attention are going to be diminished breath sounds. Are they hypotensive? Do they have any jugular venous distension? Do they have tracheal deviation? So those are signs of attention pneumothorax and would indicate that the patient might need needle decompression. Um, and then for open chest wounds, like a sucking chest wound, you're going to apply a, a semi-occlusive dressing uh, that is open on one side. That way we don't uh, cause any um, worsening of their injury. Question. On the signs of tension, mm -hmm. those hypotension, decreased breast sounds, jugular venous distension, and tracheal deviation, those are our light signs, right? Yes. Yes. So what's your preference? Is it for us to do... Uh, decompression of the chest early or, or after we find these things? So I would prefer you to do it early. I okay. think if you have a multi-system trauma, we always need to be concerned about uh, pneumothorax, tension pneumothorax. If you have a pneumothorax and it doesn't have tension uh, physiology to it and you intubate, you're putting positive pressure in the chest, which can then cause tension and you can cause a cardiac arrest. Uh, okay. I've so seen maybe... it happen. Yeah. It does happen, um, and so it's something that we have to think about. Okay. Um, but good point, great point, because those are definitely late signs of attention to the thorax. Uh, so we talked about airway, we talked about breathing, we're going to move on to circulation. Uh, so you want to assess blood pressure, you want to assess uh, the patient's heart rate. Do they have signs of hemorrhagic shock? So are they tachycardic? Are they hypotensive? Are they pale? Do they feel clammy? Uh, is their cap refill greater than two seconds? Some of those you'll notice kind of go into tension pneumo. So it's this is none of this is isolated. You're doing all this at one time and having to have multiple uh, things going on to care for the patient and keep your differential broad while we're, we're caring for these trauma patients. Um, if there is concern for uh, hemorrhage and they're hypotensive, do they have a, a pelvic fracture that needs to put a, a pelvic binder or a sheet on? Um, to prevent further hemorrhage within the pelvis. So I'll just make a statement. I don't see a lot of pelvic binding no. being noted on our I don't traumatic either. stuff. I don't either. <laughs> so what are we going to do about that? And I think that's something that, that we all need to be aware of um, because patients that are hypotensive, multi-system trauma, you may not see hemorrhage. They may be bleeding within their pelvis and their mm -hmm. belly and putting a pelvic binder on, putting a sheet around them, may help with preventing the bleeding and help with their blood pressure. We can always take off the pellet binder when, when they get to the emergency department. So for us right now, and I say that because we're looking at pelvic yes. binders, right? Yes. Commercial ones, but currently right now it's a sheet. We use a sheet. Folded. Yep. And then placed over the top and tied. How to so, that? So when you put these on, you're actually wanting to put it over the greater trochanter. So it's, it's lower than you would think. Um, and that helps to tighten up that, that, that pelvis uh, if they have an open book fracture that can cause hemorrhage and bleeding within the pelvis. Because the, the, the thought is, is by doing that, it we're closes. actually creating a, um, what is that? When you're, you're impeding blood flow because you're trying you're tamponading. to You're tamponading yep. the pelvis and that's in that effect is going to slow down or yep. hopefully stop the bleeding. Yep. Right. Okay. Yep. Um, so we've talked about airway, we've talked about breathing, we've talked about circulation. So let's move on to disability. Um, you're going to assess patient's neurologic status, their GCS score. Uh, you're going to evaluate for signs of traumatic brain injury. So we have to worry about herniation. Uh, do they have unequal pupils? Do they have any kind of lateral, lateralizing motor signs? Are they posturing? Uh, 
<clears throat> lateralizing motor signs. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me what that is. So do they have um, any paralysis to the right side, the left side? Okay. okay. Um, do they have a gaze deviation, uh, which would be signs of severe brain hemorrhage um, causing herniation and some so, lateralizing neurologic findings? So you talk about herniation, and I always took a traumatic brain injury course a long time ago, and they talked about the unequal pupils. Mm -hmm. um, posturing, pupil. it seemed like, did you find one particular posturing more significant than the other when it came to herniation? Um, off the top of my head, I can't think of anything. Um, I noted in the course, they it was the uh, outward posturing. Yeah, the, the corticate. Is in, yeah. yeah. And then, and then the, you have the, the, the separate, yeah. Yeah, that's the one that I think that are just being completely flaccid yeah. Yeah. Um, were the, the concerns for radiation. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. yeah. And those may be late things that we won't see outside of the hospital. Yeah. Depending on where the patient is within their, their trauma and, and your assessment. Um, and then exposure, we want to, you know, roll a patient. We want to look at the entire body. Um, you may cover them in some cloths, dry cloths, remove their wet clothing. Um, we want to prevent heat loss. Um, I know a lot of the, the trauma hospitals, when you get there, they, if you call in a level one trauma, a lot of times mm -hmm. they turn that heater on yeah. and it is scorching hot in those trauma rooms. So you guys kick it up there? Yes. Well, yeah. I, at some facilities we do. Um, here, you know, I don't know if we have that ability at, yeah. at our hospital. Um, previous hospitals I worked at, as soon as we got a level one trauma, we'd hit the button, it's like 90 close the doors, and it would be, we, we would be sweating. Yeah. So for the medics um, that are transporting a trauma patient, their air conditioner is not working, this is probably a benefit <laughs> to the patient, right? <laughs> the medics may not like it. <laughs> but the, the goal is to avoid hepatitis. Yeah. So, and it, to... joking aside, we definitely need to turn the air down. Yeah. In those situations. Yeah. And definitely remove any kind of wet clothing if you're in the VC and it's raining outside or there's a creek that they, they've been involved in. Temperature changes for trauma patients uh, goes back to what oxygen and how we're actually um, attaching it and moving it, right? And how mm -hmm. the body, when you look at, you know, um, the shifts, mm -hmm. Right. And so keeping the body uh, warmer and the temperature warmer is better for the patient overall yes. than, than a cold. Yes. Patient. We don't want them to be cold because yeah, yeah. that can cause complications. So that's why you'll notice a lot of these trauma hospitals. Will Do have, that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we've gone through our A, B, C, D, and E. So we've evaluated life-threatening uh, injuries to the patient uh, with our primary survey. So once you've gone through that, you've either intubated, you've done a needle decompression, you started fluids, um, you assess their disability and exposure. Uh, now we move on to secondary survey. Um, I would say that a lot of times you can do these secondary surveys while en route to the trauma hospital. You've evaluated life-threatening injuries, you move the patient safely to the back of the ambulance, uh, and you should be en route to the trauma hospital while you're managing this patient. Um, and so. You're going to do your secondary survey and it's a head to toe physical assessment, looking for any other injuries that we might have missed, uh, maintaining spinal precautions. Um, you're going to give pain medications as as needed per our protocol. And the, the big thing is monitoring patients for any type of vital sign changes, deterioration. Uh, you want to reassess neurologic status. So GCS may change. So you want to reevaluate your GCS score. Um, 
we want you to obtain vital signs every five minutes um, to continue monitoring their blood pressure, their heart rate. Um, patients may be in compensated shock, uh, and so they may not manifest with hypotension. They may not, when you get a blood pressure, it may not, they may not be hypotensive. Um, but they may start to show that while en route to the trauma hospital as they continue to have blood loss within their abdomen, their chest, their pelvis. Um, you want to evaluate uh, for worsening traumatic brain injury. They may have increasing intracranial swelling. They may have worsening hemorrhage uh, that then can lead to herniation. Uh, and then always monitor airway because they can have progressive airway compromise um, with any type of head or neck injury. So I'm going to, I was going to talk about traumatic arrest next, but I think I'm going to move that down a little bit. Um, change it up yeah, I'm going to change it up a little bit. <laughs> so um, I want to kind of talk a little bit about hemorrhage. Um, and so the goals of controlling hemorrhage and traumatic injuries is to minimize blood loss from extremity hemorrhage, avoid hemorrhagic shock, and minimize pain uh, and further injury. So when you're assessing these patients, if you, if you see hemorrhage, active hemorrhage from an extremity, the belly, chest, neck, we want to apply direct pressure. You're going to apply direct pressure to the bleeding site with a pressure dressing. If it's amenable to a tourniquet um, and, and unable to be controlled with direct pressure, we're going to apply that tourniquet. So these tourniquets are placed two or three centimeters proximal to the wound. So if you have a, a amputation at the wrist, you're not putting a tourniquet up at the shoulder. Mm. You're putting it closer to where the injury is because you don't want to cause any type of problems to that entire arm. Sure. Uh, so you're placing it two or three centimeters proximal to the wound. Um, you do not place it over a joint. You tighten it until bleeding stops, uh, and you can no longer palpate a, a distal pulse. If needed, you're going to apply a second tourniquet um, above that first tourniquet. So a little more about tourniquets. Um, we want to uh, ensure that it is uh, sufficiently tight to occlude the distal pulse, um, but we want to avoid inducing a compartment syndrome. And so that's a lot of the reason why you put it proximal to the wound and not you know, to the shoulder if you have a wrist injury or an elbow uh, injury. Um, you're going to mark the tourniquet. You want to put the time, date, and then let any provider know that there is, that you're handing off to, that they have a tourniquet on. Um, you do not cover the tourniquet with any type of clothing or dressings. Mm -hmm. uh, we do not remove the tourniquet um, if we have a short transport time, if there's any type of amputation, near amputation, if they are unstable, or if they're a complex multi-trauma patient with multiple injuries, if they are, um, if you have uh, an unstable scene uh, mm -hmm. or situation, uh, we leave the tourniquet on and we want you to get out of there as, as safely as possible. I got a question for you. Mm -hmm. Being that you're an ER physician and you uh -huh. see these patients coming in with tourniquets, have you ever seen anybody writing T and the time on their forehead? Uh, yes. Oh, yes. Really? I have okay. seen that a few times. Okay. Um, that's the way they Not trained us. Often, That's how I they trained seen, us yeah. from EMTs up yeah. to do that. Yeah. I you would, I, me personally, I would prefer on the tourniquet. Yeah. You have tape or something like that, put yeah. it on there by the tourniquet. That way we know. But I have seen people write on the forehead. Yeah. Um, That's but, probably more for an unresponsive patient. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Um, and then I don't want you to remove these tourniquets to assess for continued bleeding. We should have pretty short transport times to get to the trauma hospital to where we don't need to take it down to assess for further bleeding. Yeah. Um, if um, 
you do a tourniquet and you can replace it with a pressure dressing. You can loosen a tourniquet, um, but leave it in place loosely because if the bleeding resumes, you need to tighten it back up and leave it on. Um, if bleeding is not amenable to uh, tourniquet placement, so you have an injury to the groin, axilla, the atom, the chest, we can't really put a tourniquet um, anywhere to stop the bleeding. Right. Uh, so we want to apply direct pressure uh, and then we want to use uh, hemostatic gauze to pack the wound. Um, if you don't have any type of hemostatic gauze, which I don't, do we have Donald trucks? I can't. Oh my gosh, you're going to ask me that. <laughs> I don't think so, but uh, we had stopped the bleed and we put yep. all those out there and I might be wrong. Yeah, I'd have to look. I don't uh, know if we do or not. I hadn't thought about it in a couple of days. So. But if we don't, yeah. um, you can use plain gauze, pack the wound, because it's been equally effective in, in managing these. You're going to make me look it up. <laughs> Doc, you caught me. Um, if there is concern for hemorrhagic shock, um, which is a blood pressure less than 90, uh, apply a pelvic binder. Uh, if you suspect an open book, pelvic fracture. And then per our protocol, we can give one gram of TXA over 10 minutes in patients over 18 years of age. There are some contraindications to TXA. Uh, so like I said, under 18 years of age, uh, if the injury is greater than three hours, if they have an isolated head injury, and then if they have a known thromboembolic disease. Uh, so kind of keep TXA in mind for patients that you have concern for that are in hemorrhagic shock and massive hemorrhage. And then to go along with hemorrhage control, I want to talk about uh, amputations, so extremity amputations. We've had one here recently um, that we had to review. Um, these, if you have a finger amputation or if you have a, you know, arm amputation, leg, foot, um, we want to transport uh, with the, ex the amputated extremity for the possibility of reimplantation. And so the proper way to transport a finger, um, a toe, leg, is uh, place the amputated part in a plastic bag and then wrapped in gauze and then place the bag that the amputated uh, extremity is in in another bag with ice. We do not want any, any amputated extremities uh, to come into direct contact with ice. So please remember that um, if you have any kind of finger amputations that they need to be put in a plastic bag and another bag with ice and then no direct contact with the ice. Um, so let's move on to pain management. Um, so these patients are gonna be in a lot of pain. All right. Um, I want you to consider pain management um, with fentanyl. Um, if you have any concern for a uh, fracture or multi-system trauma. Shock uh, is a known analgesic so a lot of patients that are hypotensive may not require any type of pain control. They may have severe injuries, but not really be hurting that much because they are in shock. And so we want you to keep that in mind. And when you give fentanyl or if you give fentanyl, you may want to reduce your dose a little bit. Yeah. I remember watching in the ER, you guys putting chest tubes up and you're not like, we don't, yeah. Sometimes we don't have to do any type of analgesics. Yeah. 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 Um, so, um, Along with pain management, tourniquets hurt. Uh, I know if you did stop the bleed, uh, like I did, your instructor made you put one on and tighten it up as tight as you could till you couldn't feel your own pulse mm -hmm. and they hurt. And so if you have a tourniquet placed, um, please think about pain management for these patients. Um, 
we want to um, stabilize suspected fractures because those are painful if they're dislocated. Um, you have to think about vascular compromise. And so we want to gently attempt to uh, get the, the fracture to a normal uh, alignment. We want to use splints to limit movement, which will induce pain. We want to elevate extremity fractures uh, to limit the amount of swelling. And then kind of back to what I said during our secondary survey is we always want to reassess neurovascular status after any type of manipulation, after you put a splint on, reassess for, for distal pulses. Well, Doc, I'll tell you, I looked through our minimum supply list and I see a lot of different things like occlusive dressing, multi-trauma mm -hmm. dressings, towels, blankets, you know, uh, ABD pads, <laughs> cravats, but uh, not any of the hemostatic Like a agents. hemostatic. Yeah. So, I mean, the tourniquets are there and everything. Yeah. Right? So, so um, if we don't, then just regular gauze packed into an open wound can help uh, stop bleeding. Yeah. Uh, temporarily until you can get to a, a trauma hospital where a surgeon can do more definitive management. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about tension pneumothorax. Um, we've had a couple needle decompressions over the last several months um, that, that we've reviewed and I want to talk about. Um, and I'll probably talk more about this in a future podcast. Uh, but attention pneumothorax is a severe condition that um, results from air trapped within the pleural space, and this occurs under positive pressure. It can displace mediastinal structures, cause tracheal deviation, uh, can cause carpulmonary uh, compromise, so hypotension, um, and lead to uh, arrest. Uh, it occurs more often in blunt and penetrating traumatic injuries. However, it can occur secondary to a spontaneous uh, pneumothorax that converts to attention. Uh, it can be due to underlying lung disease. Uh, it can be due to a medical procedure. So um, if we do a needle decompression, they don't have a pneumo, uh, we can cause a pneumothorax, uh, or it can just happen idiopathically. But kind of for today's talk, we're talking more about the, the blunt and, and penetrating injuries causing a tension pneumo. So we need to think about tension pneumothorax in all patients with traumatic injuries uh, before intubating, uh, kind of like we talked about earlier. Intubation causes a positive pressure within the chest wall, which can cause a, a simple pneumothorax to cause tension physiology. So if you have suspicion for pneumothorax, a tension pneumothorax, based off of kind of what we talked about, the hypotension, do they have jugular venous distension, tracheal deviation, um, decreased breath sounds, then you need to think about needle decompression. Um, and this is, those are the indications for it. Um, and then traumatic arrest as well. Where are we decompressing the chest? Yep. There's, so there's two places <laughs> okay. uh, that I'll talk about. Okay. Um, and I, and let me, the, the, so complications with a tension pneumo or a needle decompression is, I think I mentioned already, you can create a pneumothorax. Yeah. You can cause vascular injury. Yeah. All right. Depending on which site you use, you can cause mediastinal injury with incorrect placement. You can cause injury to the abdomen. I've seen some um, needle compressions done in very interesting places, uh, but you can also cause infection. Um, I think that's something that I wouldn't be too worried about. We're trying to save somebody's life um, with attention to thorax and tension uh, physiology. And so infection is something that is lower on the, the risk of complications, but something to think about. So kind of like you're talking about, where do we do a needle decompression? Mm -hmm. So you're gonna use a 14 gauge IV needle. So you wanna use a large bore catheter. 
All right. Traditionally, um, in a lot of the trauma literature, they talk about putting at the second intercostal space, yeah. mid clavicular line at the superior margin. There's a lot of evidence coming out recently that there's actually a lower rate of failure if you use the fourth intercostal space anterior axillary line. Ah. And that's where I put a chest tube. When I have a patient and they have mm -hmm. a pneumothorax, I'm putting a chest tube in. I'm doing it fourth intercostal space, anterior axillary line. And that's about it on a, on a male that's going to be at the nipple line. Um, and so that's, I, I think, a great let me ask you this, uh -huh. okay, because there was some training for us for peds because that's, I think that's great for adults, right? And that's also putting you closer to that diaphragm, mm -hmm. right? Um, isn't there some question on because of the peds and being smaller yep. that that actually... So in a, in, a, in a kid, I would still use the second intercostal space axillary. Oh. Okay. Because you are taking that chance, uh, fourth intercostal, um, you know, going into the abdomen and... and through the diaphragm. Okay. Uh, so in a kid, I would probably try to use the second intercostal space mid axillary line. If you use fourth intercostal space, um, know your landmarks um, because you there's always a risk of uh, putting a needle into the abdomen through the diaphragm and not getting into the chest wall. All right. So we've kind of talked a little bit about locations you asked about the, the where would you do it on a pediatric patient mm -hmm. yeah to kind of give y'all because i know it's new information uh for some of y'all uh putting a, a needle decompression uh into the fourth intercostal space so when i'm doing a chest tube i take my hand i make an l mm -hmm. and my index finger goes on the patient's nipple all right okay. on a male on a female you cannot use the nipple if they have pendulous breasts um, because it's not going to be an accurate location. So put your finger on the nipple. I wrap my thumb around their back. It kind of looks like you're grabbing side. the mm -hmm. chest with your hand on the side. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And in the webbing of my thumb and my index finger is where you're going to put the chest, where I put a chest tube. Which is right the about the, is about that four. anterior of the mid axillary? So that's going to be anterior axillary. So okay. anterior axillary line. Um, and that's where I put my chest tube. Well, you you'll put an angiocath, um, mm -hmm. for patients with attention pneumo. Uh, and I, if, if any of y'all have any questions, want to see a, you know, a diagram or anything like that, we can maybe put something together and okay. send out. Um, so you're going to find your location. You're using a large bore 14 gauge, uh, angiocath, and you're going to use a syringe. All right. Attached to your angiocath. You're going to advance in the second. Uh, intercostal space, midclavicular, or fourth intercostal space, anterior axillary line, and you're going to aspirate until you get air. Once you get air, uh, you're going to withdraw the needle, syringe, and you're going to leave the angiocath in, open to air. You'll get a rush of air, indicating that you have a pneumothorax or a tension pneumo. Mm -hmm. If the patient's unstable, hopefully that improves their hemodynamics uh, and their blood pressure improves, oxygenation improves. You know, I'll just go back to a little bit about advancing catheter. Um, they always trained us that we were going to go over the top of the rib. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Everything, vessels and nerves actually lie under it. Yep. So we so try to stay. We call it the van. You have your van, artery, and a nerve, and they're all uh, inferior to the ribs. And it's the, the nerve vascular bundle um, that follows the, the ribs. So you want to go above the rib mm -hmm. uh, to avoid the, the artery vein and the nerve. Okay. Um, 
you know, it's, I think if you're doing a needle, um, sometimes in some of our obese patients, it's going to be a lot harder, mm-hmm. uh, for you to say, yes, I'm above the rib. They might actually hit the rib. You might hit the rib. So you may have to angle up. Just go over. Yeah. Uh, for me, if I'm doing a chest tube, I'm actually dissecting and I can feel the rib and I can put my finger through. So I know exactly where I'm at. Okay. Um, so I skipped traumatic arrest. Let's talk about that real quick. Um, and then we can close. Um, so traumatic arrest is something that we do see. All right. Um, when you have a patient that is in an arrest, uh, likely due to multi-system trauma, um, we want to look at a lot of different things. So resuscitative measures, um, from the literature I reviewed should be withheld for trauma patients with any of the following. So decapitation, yeah. hemicorpectomy, which is if they have half their body amputated. Okay. <laughs> For those that might not have known that word. <laughs> um, signs of rigor mortis or dependent lividity. And then it took a while for us to get there. Yeah. Yes, it did. Okay. <laughs> they've been, they've been unfortunately dead for probably a while. Okay. Um, and then traumatic arrest with blunt trauma. So if they're adnic, if they're pulseless, if they have no organized car activity on a monitor. So we, we want you to put leads on these patients, get an EKG, mm-hmm. if they're asystole, blunt trauma, apneic, pulseless, resuscitative, resuscitative measures uh, should be withheld. Um, and resuscitative efforts may be terminated in patients with traumatic arrest who have no ROSC after 15 to 30 minutes of resuscitative efforts. Mm. So that, that includes penetrating trauma um, on top of the blunt trauma. Okay. And that resuscitative effort involves airway management. You're evaluating for attention pneumothorax. I would argue that if, if you have a patient that is traumatic arrest, you probably need to do a needle bilateral needle decompression. Even if they don't, uh, if they got, they say they have clear lung sounds. Well, if they're in traumatic arrest. That's right. Well, I, the, the reason why I say yeah. this, this is the responses I get back from some medics. Yeah after we review one of these cases. Yeah. I, I would I would argue in a, a patient in traumatic arrest doing a needle decompression may get ROSC. Yeah. And so I would do bilateral needle decompression. Mm-hmm. Um, you do airway management. Uh, you want to give them fluids. And airway then management, wanna, some IGEL. IGEL, yeah. I would say IGEL. Now, if they have expanding hematomas, things like that, you may have to look at either intubation or even... It goes back to that earlier list that you were talking yep. about, the yep. airway piece. Yep. Okay. Uh, and then obviously mentally interrupted CPR. Um, so I was looking at our CPG um, and we kind of have, I want y'all to review that. All right. But in there, we have some injuries that are incompatible with life kind of goes with what I just mentioned. Uh, but signs of life include any type of spontaneous movement, signs of respiratory effort. If they have peripheral pulses, central pulses, or if they have any type of auscultated heart sounds. Um, if they have no signs of life with blunt penetrating trauma uh, and no signs of life um, in asystole, then resuscitation can be withheld, uh, and that's in RCPG. This is this is a tough um, uh, pathway to follow because if you realize traumatic uh, arrest is not happening at home in yes. most cases. This is on the side of the road after an MVC. Lots, uh, yeah, lots of people. Yep. Um, lots of firefighters, lots of police, lots of just people with phones. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's this point where we have a tendency that we want to move them into the ambulance. Mm-hmm. And it seems like in some of the discussions I've had with Dr. Donahue is that we want to resuscitate right where we find them. Mm-hmm. If 
if it's safe to do if it's safe so. if the scene is safe and right. you're safe then we want to do what we can at the scene uh in resuscitating these patients because if things are not favorable and you do all these things the the advanced airway um no epinephrine right because mm-hmm. that's a yep. change from the medical arrest yep. because we're not it's not a medical cost to their arrest it's yeah a cost. Um, the volume that we're talking about uh putting in um, the bilateral chest decompressions the pelvic binding right those are all things that we can do and we can provide uh-huh. um, for these patients and all that in place and then the, and then we do this and there's still nothing uh, it's i think our cpg says at that point we are calling medical mm-hmm. control yeah and then um with the discussion being toward leaning towards termination yeah right so then also now we have somebody that's on the side of the road that um that we basically resuscitated but um we're not transporting we're them. not transporting yeah. so that, there comes another complication right yeah for sure for, absolutely for um the scene and everything else so I think we've got some um, the ability to kind of um, move, I guess, be fluid yeah. in this based on those scenarios. Yeah, it's not black and white for yeah. sure. Okay, not black and white. So um, to go along with everything we talked about, I, I want y'all to review some of the CPGs. I encourage y'all to do that. I'm going to start talking about our CPGs and, and ones that I want y'all to review at the end of every podcast that kind of talk more about what we have for our system. Uh, mm-hmm. So I want y'all to review uh, isolated extremity trauma, chest decompression, traumatic arrest. And I didn't talk about it, uh, but I want y'all to review the trauma activation criteria uh, for our hospital systems in, in this area. Sounds like you're issuing homework now. I, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my daughter just started kindergarten and so we're yeah. doing homework with her. I got to start doing yeah, it everywhere. Do. Well, I just I was listening. I was like, okay, everyone, now you know before you come back to the next podcast. <laughs> but I think it's just good to know. It is. And it so, is. and constantly reviewing our CPGs because they we do update them. They change, and so it's good for everybody to review them and know our CPGs. Uh, that way, you're not at the scene trying mm. to scramble and find our CPG and say, okay, what do I need to do um, when you already know. Yes. I think it's prudent for everyone, including myself, to uh, to look at our CPGs um, every time we come on duty. Yeah. You know, if we have that time, just to, and to look at <clears throat> the things that we don't have happen as much. We yeah. call it the high acuity, low frequency stuff. Exactly. And, and I think today this is definitely uh, meets those uh, those cases. I think so. So, thank you for listening. Um, hopefully, you get something out of it. The next couple podcasts, I'm going to try to gear towards more specifics of trauma. Um, if y'all have anything you want me to talk about, any suggestions, if you have questions, concerns about what we talk about, uh, just let me or Michael know and, and we'll get we, back to you. We want to get some people in here, right? Absolutely. We need to get some people I in think, here. I think we need to, either somebody needs to come forward or we're going to come find you. <laughs> right? Absolutely. <laughs> well, we can do that. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Doc. And uh, everybody else, we uh, hopefully enjoyed our podcast today, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.